Well, if you would, open up your Bibles. We're in Isaiah. We're in chapter 40. We're going to wrap up chapter 40. It's on page 600 in the Pew Bible in front of you, 600. Today's sermon could be one of the best sermons in your life. Not because I'm that great of a preacher, but because God's word is that great of a word. God draws his people He draws near to them in the harshest of circumstances, and he calls them to do the hardest thing humanly possible, wait. As the late, great Tom Petty sang, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard. You take it on faith, take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Waiting is hard. We get antsy. And if this is true for simply waiting in supermarket checkout aisles or in the doctor's office, how much more so do we get antsy waiting for God? The people of God in our text have been waiting in exile in Babylon. Another prophet, Jeremiah, says they will be there 70 years. That's a lot of waiting. How are you at waiting? Thankfully, God has a wonderful word for us today. Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this word to us today. We need uh, to know that, that that this kingdom of heaven is worth it, that you are a great and glorious God and that you reach into our despair of life and give us hope, hope to cling on to. We pray now that we'd understand more fully that there is a calling upon us as Christians to wait, and this is a good thing. Amen. One of the most compelling psychiatrists of the 20th century is a man by the name of Viktor Frankl, whose work centered upon uh, meaning and purpose in life in the midst of suffering. Frankel was a credible expert, for he himself suffered as a prisoner in Auschwitz from 1942 to 1945. He wrote about it in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. What Frankel observed in the Nazi concentration camp was the difference between the survivors and the dead. And it wasn't a matter of physical health and strength. What made the difference between the living and the dead was hope. 
something to live for beyond the barbed wire, something to look forward to, something to go home to after the war. Here's a brief excerpt from this book. He writes, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no physical blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. Or as Frankel summarizes, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Frankel's insights apply to us today. Though it might require a little bit of imagination on your part to see it, we in some way live in a camp behind a barbed wire fence in the sense that the world in which we live, it never fully satisfies, and then in the end, we die. If you're young, you may have a difficult time agreeing with this, for you have the whole world ahead of you, and all these opportunities seem endless, and your power seems like it's growing every day, but eventually you'll come to see that than sense that this barbed wire fence that exists in this world, and you come to realize it when you realize that all this stuff that you've been turning to inside the camp never really fully satisfies. I like how Ray Ortland Jr. describes it. He says, we look out on the shopping malls and hamburger joints and freeways. Is that what we have to settle for? If the best we can expect is next summer's vacation in Hawaii, or even just next weekend's outing at a lake, if our hope is a comfortable, successful existence until we die, we'll inevitably fall into the lifestyle Blaise Pascal called licking the earth, ego, carnality, and materialism. But if we have something beyond the barbed wire to look forward to, something that's beautiful, that's ours, something to live for that can never be taken away from us, we can face anything. Or again, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Isaiah has been speaking to the people of God in exile. They're in captivity. And they can't bear life anymore behind the barbed wire fence. See, the impossible has happened. They, they thought their nation could never fail with God on their side. And now everything was unraveled. The nation was overrun. The temple destroyed. Now they're living in captivity in the enemy's land. And the word that summarizes their state is despair. Now, for centuries, if you know your Old Testament, God has graciously cried out to his people, I am the source outside the wire for all your happiness. I am the why to live for that can bear any how. Perhaps the people are beginning to believe this. 
And so this sermon is an important one as it is a tipping point for us. Will we be a people who profess belief in God, but all the while we cleverly avoid fully submitting our happiness to him? Or will we, with what little imperfect faith that we have, yield ourselves fully to the powerful care and the weight upon the Lord with faith? See, it's one thing to have big and true thoughts about God, It's another to have the faith to actually wait upon the Lord when it looks like he's nowhere to be found. Isaiah teaches us something incredible, that when we wait for the Lord, our lives experience God's profound renewal. That's our big point this morning. We will look at that under three headings, despair, our despair, God's greatness, and our renewal. First, our despair. Much of life lived in this world is fighting off despair. It's why people become workaholics and alcoholics. It's why people get married. It's why people get divorced. It's why people save. It's why people spend. J.R.R. Tolkien describes this life behind the wire this way. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. We're all just one heartbreak, one injury, one diagnosis away from despair. And if you live long enough, you will have endured many seasons of life when hope escapes you and despair kicks in. Is this not true? Listen, God knows this about us. And what Isaiah wants to press home is that God does not disregard his people. But it often feels this way, right? Often find ourselves thinking, where are you, God? It's like my life is hidden from you. You demand so much from me, but where are you when I need your help? Have you ever felt this way? On the one hand, this is to be expected. See, no Christian lives with unwavering faith. Young people, learn this. No Christian lives with unwavering faith. We all experience doubts. We all have times where we struggle to believe. We all get antsy. And so what is the word from heaven that Isaiah speaks to us? Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Into our parties of self-pity comes a penetrating word. Why? This is one of those rubber-meets-the-road kind of words. See, the Christian life is more than just believing intellectual truths about God. The Christian life is an experiential relationship with God. What you believe in your head must be wrestled with in your heart. And that is why Jacob and Israel are referred to. They're not two different people. Jacob was the patriarch over the nation who wrestled with God, and therefore God changed his name to Israel. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham, and his father was Isaac. And Jacob had always referred to God, not as his God, but as the God of my fathers. You remember that? It wasn't until Jacob was in fullness of despair that God became Jacob's God too. Jacob was traveling with his family. He heard that Esau, his estranged brother who wanted to kill him, was approaching Jacob fearfully sent his family's caravan away to safety, and he remained there alone at night. And there Jacob came to wrestle with a godlike, angelic, 
man. And he wrestled all night long. And Jacob would not give in until this God-man blessed him. And the God-like man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with man and have prevailed. Listen, take delight in this truth. God always blesses those who are desperate enough to wrestle with him. That is why Isaiah mentions Jacob in Israel. He is saying the way of God's people has always been to wrestle with God. God wants us to wrestle with him. For in our wrestling, we come to know God. And not just in our heads, but in our hearts. I'd like to speak to the younger people here. It is our hope that you have always believed in Christ and and believed in this gospel from a young age. But there will be a time when you need to wrestle with God. So that it isn't just the God of mom and dad, but he's your God. And you know him and you love him. Listen, wrestling is normal. It's part of the Christian life. Now let me ask you, what do you think will be the circumstances when you come to wrestle with God? Will it be a day when everything is nice and carefree? No. You will likely wrestle with God when you find yourself at the end of your rope in despair, when all your earthly resources have been spent when you faint and grow weary and fall exhausted, then you will reach up to God and wrestle with him. And he will lovingly humble you so that he, in his grace, may lift you up. That is what God is doing with his people in the book of Isaiah. The people of God were in exile in Babylon. They felt abandoned by God. But the truth is, such feelings couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, God allowed them to be captured. He willed it upon his own people. The people had violated God's covenant of grace with great, prolonged, ongoing offense. Before entering into the promised land, God promised to bless his people and multiply them and to care for them and to prosper them. All God required of his people was that their hearts would be fastened to God in great love and trust to respond to God's grace by loving God and loving neighbor. But if they fail, remember God said, God promised he would spit them out of the land. And here we are. Decade after decade, for hundreds of years, the people forsook God. They worshiped foreign gods, and their society became godless and corrupt. That is why they're in despair in Babylon. Their punishment, it fit the crime. But please remember the melody of grace in this book of Isaiah. My friends, God doesn't love discipline, but he disciplines those he loves. God disciplines us for our good so that we'd see how foolish we are, so that we begin to wait for him. That's our despair. Now for God's greatness. The big idea here is this. God is able to lift us out of our despair because of who he is. It all hangs on who he is and who is he. In verse 28, Isaiah says four things about God's greatness. First, God alone is eternal. Beginning of verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God. He's saying God's eternal. We're not, but God is. 
You remember a few summers ago when, when we preached on Ecclesiastes and, and how, we, how we discussed how our lives have two components or phases to them. There's the dot phase and the line phase. The dot phase is the life we have right now. It has a beginning. It has an end. You're born and you die. It's a dot on this timeline of eternity. It's a tiny, tiny little dot. But then there's also the line phase. When we all pass away or when the Lord returns, we enter into the line phase that goes on for all in all eternity. Your dot phase is short, my friends. It will be over soon. But the line phase is where you will spend the rest of your existence. And the problem we humans have is that we focus all of our attention and our energy to living in the dot phase, not the line. But God has no beginning and no end. God alone is eternal. Everything for us happens in the present, does it not? This is why our troubles are filled with such urgency here and now. But not God. God is not confined to time. God is present at all points of time at the same time. And so this should, what? This should comfort us, should it not? God is always one step ahead of us. <laughs> and so we should never panic if things are not gelling as we would like them to. Second thing is God is the creator of all things. That is what Isaiah says in verse 28, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah's point is that there's nothing in all of creation that is outside of God's purview. Anywhere you find yourself in this world, whether in exile in Babylon or standing over a loved one's grave or alone in your dorm or alone in the ICU, wherever you find yourself is a place where God already is. Thirdly, God is always at work. Verse 28, he does not faint or grow weary. Weary. And last year, in 2022, a total of 11.5 billion cans of Red Bull were consumed on earth. 11.5. Melissa Pombos says she didn't have any. I think I might have had a couple of years. God doesn't drink Red Bull. He never needs a nap in the afternoon, a little shot of five-hour energy. He never has to call it a day. He never has a bad night's sleep. In fact, as you sleep, God is accomplishing thousands of things for you without you even knowing. And he never grows tired or weary, but is forever fresh and always alert. Let me ask you, do you know about this God? Better yet, do you know this God? Fourthly, God is wise. As Isaiah says, his understanding is unsearchable. One of the great sources of despair for the Christian is that we experience hardship and we cannot for the life of us understand how or why God would allow this for his understanding is unsearchable. And so all sorts of despairing thoughts enter our heads and the devil rejoices. Isaiah wants us to see that life is full of confusion. Life is bewildering for us, but not to God. Isaiah wants us to understand that though we may think our life is off the rails, it is exactly where God wants us to be, for he knows what he is doing. 
I like what Ortland says regarding this. He writes, we don't live by explanation. We live by promises. We don't figure God out by our brains. We submit to him by faith. Now, Isaiah wants us to see something else. God isn't just great and glorious in himself, but he's also great and glorious in that he shares his strength with his people, and we should welcome this. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Listen, God will meet you in your weakness and give you his perfect power. But know this, God does not give strength to those who think they are strong apart from God. God gives power to those who know they are weak. In our four verses, the words faint or grow weary weary, uh, occurs seven times. And who are those who grow faint and weary that we see in verse 28? Are they not the very same complainers in verse 27? They are. Now, Isaiah isn't talking about a physical weakness. No, Isaiah is referring to a weakness of faith. They are spiritually tired and fatigued. Tell me, Christian, you've been there. They lack spiritual courage and they feel like quitting. Isaiah wants us to marvel at this truth. God delights to give his strength to his weary people. And we were all a weary people. Every day of our lives are lived behind the barbed wire in the camp of this fallen world. The same God who encourages us to wrestle with him gives us strength to wrestle with him. God delights to share his power with you so that you may be lifted out of despair, so that you may behold his glory outside of the wire. When you wrestle with God, God supplies the power You start focusing less and less upon your dot phase of life behind the barbed wire and and more and more upon the line phase of perfection beyond the camp. Does this make sense? As Frankel said, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Christian, when you find that God alone gives you purpose and reason for living, then he also makes you to be remarkably resilient with your life inside the wire. Your life takes on a remarkable renewal. How so? That's our last point, our renewal. The big idea here is this. Listen, the renewal God works in us by his power isn't a reformation of our behavior. Be better Christians, do this, but rather a reformation of our ultimate love and allegiance. Isaiah is talking about power from God for us so that as you wrestle with him in your despair, he humbles you and lifts you up so that you love God and live for him. And this, my friends, is the renewal that every human being desperately needs. The renewal of God is remarkable. We see it in verses 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings, not Red Bull wings, uh, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. 
Again, he's not talking about a physical reality per se, but a spiritual power in our lives. And what we need to see at first is that this renewal at God's hand, it comes by a supernatural power. Soak in what Isaiah is saying. When he says, even youth shall faint and be weary, he is saying not even the strongest human beings have the power needed for the renewal that God has in mind. But God will enable those who draw near. He will give them strength to do the impossible. They will soar like eagles and run without quitting. This is supernatural. This is miraculous strength that God alone can give. This is not you mustering up a stronger willpower. Well, I'll just try harder tomorrow to be a good Christian. No, this is not a stronger willpower. It's the power of God in you. And to experience this power, you must come to see yourself as needy. For it is in your neediness that you come to live before God with a humble expectancy. And we come to live with a deep, joyful conviction that God gives the grace and the power to press on with life behind the camp, behind the barbed wire. This is where God wants us to experience his supernatural power and strength. Now, the, uh, this expectancy ties in with how this power comes to us. How does it come to us? It comes to those who wait. When I was a little boy, I couldn't wait for Christmas. As the day got closer, the more excited I got. And then Christmas Eve, crazy, sleepless nights. Couldn't get to bed. Didn't even need Red Bull to stay up. One time we celebrated Christmas out in western Kansas with my, with my grandparents. And my brother and I had a bedroom upstairs. And we were so wired. We were so excited. And we went and we looked out the window. And there he was. Rudolph. The red-nosed reindeer. We could see his red nose flashing in the distance. But after a while, it didn't move. <laughs> so we got Dad. Dad can explain it. And he took one quick look at us and he said, Ah, oh, son, that flashing red light, it, it's not Rudolph, it's a radio tower. That does describe how our waiting should be. Waiting can be exciting, and our waiting for the Lord is meant to be this way. Waiting for the Lord is not a waiting with boredom. It's not a prolonged killing of time playing Candy Crush or scrolling through reels or on TikTok. This is, listen, this is a standing on your tiptoes, leaning out the window towards heaven with an eager longing kind of waiting. Listen. Christian, waiting is supposed to be an integral part of our faith. See, God gives us amazing, great promises, and then he calls us to wait. So, Christian, if you find yourself waiting for the Lord, then you're experiencing the normal life of faith. Embrace it. I like how Ortland defines waiting. He writes, waiting is what faith does before God ans God's answers show up. And so let's think this through. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to let God set the pace in your life? Or are you such a controller you can't live on God's terms? 
is the prospect of having the glory of the Lord as your eternal delight out beyond the barbed wire, something your heart prizes as worth the wait. If so, Isaiah says, your heart will be endlessly renewed until that great day. And if not, you're on your own. Isaiah challenges us to wait instead of worry, to wait instead of taking matters into our own hands. I I need this. How about you? I, I often find myself looking for solutions to my lack of contentment inside the wire. Instead of waiting in faithfulness, I can wander in foolishness. How about you? I like how Ortland challenges me here. He writes, listen closely. Christianity is not a way to cut a deal with God for an easier life now. It will not do to put my faith in God while I keep my heart on this world. God will not underwrite my worldliness with his power. Ouch. Remember the primary issue Isaiah is addressing in this entire book. The people of God have been taking the grace of God for granted. They like having God around, but they prefer to chart their own course in life. They like having God around so long as God delivers on their terms. And when God allows foreign nations to attack so that the people are humbled, instead of crying out in faith and waiting for the Lord to answer in his timing, the people cry out to where? Remember? Egypt. Come rescue us, Egypt. The people of God back then needed God to renew their love and trust for God. And so to us today, the renewal we need is for our hearts to want nothing else on earth than God in heaven. Listen, Christian, you will experience maturity in your Christian life when you can finally with joy say, all I want out of my life is God and God alone. Nothing else matters but that I belong to God and God to me. Are you there yet? My friends, this is the renewal God works in his people as we wait upon the Lord. This morning in these four verses from Isaiah, he's taught us something of critical importance. That when we wait for the Lord, our lives experience God's powerful renewal. My friend, God calls us to wait. Is that part of your Christian life? Did you not just like say, okay, I guess I could, but you're like, no, I want to learn how to be someone who waits well. God calls us to wait so that our lives have more to do with him. He wants us to hang our lives on his promise to one day wipe every tear and remove all despair forever and ever. Our dot phase of lives will one day enter into the eternal line phase of glory. And so when we find ourselves in despair thinking, my way is hidden from the Lord, God wants us to look at the cross of Christ and see the evidence for how much he loves us, for how much he's paying attention. For in the cross of Christ, we see how God came down to live inside the camp with us, to experience the sorrow and the heartache of life behind the wire. 
And in his death, he opened up for all who believed a way out of the camp. In Christ Jesus, God has given us our why to live that can bear anyhow. Let's pray. Father, we confess how foolish we are to continually come back to this subject. That there is no happiness apart from you. And our lives take on meaning and purpose and great delight when we look up to you and wrestle with you and wait for you. We know this. Help to press this more and more into our lives today. Help us as we feed on Christ in a moment to, to, to experience the renewal, the power that only comes from your hand. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.